Please join with me today as I read from Scripture our text for this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I wonder how those words sit with you. Those are red-letter words, are they not? The words of our King, Jesus who comes to us this morning and says to his people, love your enemies. Do you have enemies? What kind of person loves enemies? What kind of person loves the undeserving, the ungrateful, the unlovely, Well, says our King, Jesus, God does. God loves his enemies. In fact, this is the heart of the gospel, is it not? What is the gospel? God in Christ moving toward the undeserving, moving toward ungrateful people, people born in ignorance of him, Uh, People born to oppose his ways, go their own way. The communion table celebrates this unreasonable love of God. And what do I mean by unreasonable? I simply mean that there is no reason found in you or in me, nor in any of God's people that provokes his love for us. Did you know that? If you are a Christian today, it is not because God saw in you some inherent loveliness, some potential in you that he didn't see in others. It is not because you've somehow merited the gift of his saving love. None of us is deserving Amen? Salvation is an outpouring of love that is sourced only in God himself. God takes the initiative 
and he lavishes his people with saving love through the work of his son, Jesus. Jesus, who says to his redeemed people, love your enemies. The scripture that we read earlier this morning proclaims this, doesn't it? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I got stuck on the words, his own. And so we're all stuck on them for just a couple of minutes here. It's God's own love, a love sourced in him that is demonstrated in his saving sinners from his wrath. It's God's own love that compelled him to choose his own before the foundation of the world was even formed. God's own love compelled him to send his son into the world on a rescue mission to save sinners, to save his people from their sins. And it was this heavenly love, God's own love, that compelled the Son, our King, to step out of eternity into time, into humanity, to live as a man among sinful men and women, like the person you see in the mirror every morning. Me too. Day after day, year after year, Jesus lived among sinful people as the sinless one, the perfect image bearer of the Father. And and then for love's sake, love sourced in God, Jesus went to Calvary to be forsaken by the Father, to, to drink every last drop of the Father's wrath for the sins of his people. Not, not his own sin, your, your sin, my sin. Jesus was forsaken so that you need not ever be forsaken by God. Are you glad for this? Jesus drank that cup of wrath so that you need never taste it, though you deserve to do so. And the echo of this love Again, his own love, love sourced only in God. The, the echo of that love is, is heard in an empty tomb, isn't it? He's risen. He, he's alive. Sin for the king's people is conquered through his work. Death is defeated for them. The king's beloved people have an everlasting share in his victory, don't we? What a demonstration this is then of God's own love for his people. Who loves enemies? Are we not thankful this morning, church, that God does? All of that is celebrated in this remembrance That is the Lord's table. That is the Lord's supper. And if you've received this gift of love from God, 
by repentance and faith, please join us in remembering and celebrating with the bread and the cup. And and if you've not yet received this gift of God's saving love, I urge you to turn to Christ today. You're not here by accident, friend. You're not here by by happenstance. You're here to be reminded that your sin one day will be judged and it will be judged either in Christ as your substitute or it will be judged for all eternity as you face the wrath of God alone. So run to him. Trust in him. Surrender to his love. The the communion table is God's loud declaration that the cross of Jesus is this, this great dividing line in all of humanity. And for that reason, the communion table is only for believers. It's for each of God's blessed ones, or as David says in Psalm 2, all those who put their trust in him. Now, as we have the elements distributed, I want to encourage us, as we always do, to take a moment of, of reflection. The scripture says we ought not run to the Lord's table hastily, thoughtlessly, like we do some of the other routines in our lives, but that we come with consecrated hearts. Certainly, if there's anything going on in our lives right now that the Holy Spirit is telling us is just sin, let's confess that now in the quiet of our hearts that we might take the bread and the cup in in a worthy manner. Let's do that now. As the elements are passed, let's sing together how deep the Father's love for us. Sons to glory. 
upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was a his reward is that the cry of your heart this morning boy it is mine the scripture says that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he gave thanks let's just bow our hearts together now and give thanks shall we Jesus we thank you so much that you've done for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. You have done everything necessary to reconcile us to God, to declare we who once were your enemies, your friends. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin that your blood alone provides for us. We thank you for that empty tomb, Lord, that you are our risen king. Lord, we ask that you would bless this remembrance to our hearts and that it would be a blessing to you as your people adore you in this way together. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take the bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. How do we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? What does that even mean? Well, well, certainly it means that heaven's king is coming again. Amen? He's coming again to to rule uh, uh, over his world. He's coming again to reign with his people, those for whom he died for. He's bringing heaven with him. And in Matthew's gospel we have seen that this rule of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, is already breaking into humanity. Its presence is realized now. How is it realized now? Well, it's realized now in the church, in the lives of God's people, lived out by faith, in the power of the Spirit, in this fallen world. Remember, Jesus came and began preaching what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The the kingdom is here because the king has come. What is a church? A, A church, the church, is a body of repentant sinners saved by grace overwhelmed by God's redeeming love in Christ. People with renewed hearts, now governed by Christ as king. I wonder, is your heart governed by Christ, your king? And I ask you that because the the passage that was read earlier from, from Matthew 5, which is the one we're turning to now, by the way, answers the question, how would anybody know if your heart is governed by Christ as king? Well, that that passage is to do with kingdom people, isn't it? It, it, It's to kingdom people that the king, Jesus says, love your enemies. Look at verse 43, please. I'm kind of bossy this morning, aren't I? I wasn't wasn't up late last night or anything. (laughs) You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Remember what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is correcting uh, the misuse of God's moral law uh, by his people Israel. He, He hasn't come, our Jesus, he hasn't come to change the law, to make it easier, to make it more difficult. Remember, Jesus says, I I didn't come to change anything. I came to fulfill it. 
the people who were the first listeners to this Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, those in ancient Galilee looking at the king and and listening to him, uh, were those who for generations had looked to their own religious leaders for direction in terms of how they were to live out the Ten Commandments. What, what does it look like in the practical flow of everyday life to live as those who um, honor the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, or, or the, you know, the case law in the Old Testament that, that amplified for God's people what it was to live as the people of God? Why would they do that? Because they understood that the law reflects God's holiness. It still does today, doesn't it? The law reflects the best life that God has for his people. So so they would look to their religious leaders and say, hey, how do we live this out? What's it supposed to look like? And and what had happened? Their own teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the rabbis, had so contorted God's law that it scarcely reflected the heart of God at all. Verse 43 begins then the last of six um, antitheses or six correctives that Jesus um, preached to God's people to help them understand rightly the heart of God in his moral law, the Ten Commandments. And, and, and the, the tone of the corrective is, is familiar to us by now, isn't it? I know you've been taught this. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Uh, but I say to you, love your enemies. What? Generation upon generation of God's people had been taught precisely the opposite with respect to enemies. Never mind that the Mosaic Law Code instructed God's people to love their neighbor, and they could have extrapolated from that who a neighbor really is. Listen to Leviticus 19.18. God says to his people, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice that verse says nothing about hating one's enemies. But but it could have been misconstrued in such a way that God's people thought, well, okay, this is for the children of your people, God, and so that must mean that we're to be nice to those people. Those are our neighbors. And then, well, an enemy is the opposite then of a neighbor. I guess, I guess we're meant to hate our enemies. This hating your enemies business was an idea that was developed over the centuries by the teachers of the law, the rabbis, and you, you can imagine their reasoning. In fact, I would argue that we don't have to imagine their reasoning in light of what we know of our own hearts today. How do you get God's law to say what you really want it to say? Well, if we're supposed to love our neighbors and the opposite of a neighbor is an enemy, then it stands to reason that we should just hate our enemies, right? Doesn't it? Again, generation after generation soaking in this teaching, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. 
In fact, did you notice in the text in verse 43 that God's people had so misconstrued it that it was not merely permissible to hate one's enemy. It was required to hate one's enemy. You're supposed to do that, the rabbis had taught them. You have heard that it was said, you shall hate your enemy. And this whole business of who was a, was a, a, a neighbor uh, in, the, in the Jewish mind um, hinged upon whether or not you belonged to Israel, whether you were, you know, by uh, your heritage, a Jewish person. In fact, one of the best-known parables uh, to us, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we call it, um, really gets at this issue of who is my neighbor, and that parable of, of the Samaritan who was not Jewish but was a Samaritan people. See how easy that was? <laughs> One of those half-breeds who don't worship in the right place and they look and act differently than we do. And the scandal of that parable is what? Turns out that's a neighbor. Turns out that's somebody you're supposed to love. And so this who is my neighbor question is not a dumb question. It's just the wrong question. Even an enemy is a neighbor. So, so we, can, we can take this, this text in, in Matthew's gospel and, and be certain that God is saying this. Look, anyone in my sphere of influence is my neighbor. Um, and, and is to be loved, friend and enemy alike. Are you hearing this? Yeah. Do, doesn't, every once in a while, nod or something. It's very affirming to the person up here. Um, it, it makes no difference whether I consider that person a friend or an enemy. Someone who belongs to my political party as opposed to the other one. Buckle up, because this is going to get practical, Okay. I am meant to see as neighbor every human being that I come into contact with and show every human being in my orbit the love of God who's loved me in this way. That's what we just celebrated at the communion table. God's love, his out outrageous, outlandish love, his unreasonable love for those born enemies of God. Anyway, this is, this is the main point in Jesus' teaching here. Loving your neighbor means loving your enemy. Why? Well, because everybody loves their friends. Everybody loves those who to them are lovely or, or who might reciprocate Love. So the better question for God's people in Jesus' day would have been how? I mean, this is so outrageous. How does a person love enemies the same way that she loves friends? Those who love her in return. Do, do you see how this is the other side of the same coin that we looked at in verses 38 through 42? That, that was love kind of put in, in the negative sense in terms of don't retaliate, right? 
It's it's not enough to refuse to retaliate against those who offend me, those who presume upon me, those who who would even seek to to, to use me. Um, That's what an enemy does, by the way, right? An enemy is someone who works against you. She's committed to to, to shaming you or, or, or disgracing you. He's, whatever he's doing, he's not working toward your good, right? That's an enemy. And an enemy could be in your workplace. An enemy could be in your neighborhood. An enemy could be in your own family. An enemy could even be in the company of God's people. Why do I phrase it that way? In the company of God's people. Well, Judas comes to mind. I mean, Judas played the part really well. For the longest time, people looked at Judas and said, hey, there goes one of the Jesus people. Look at him. How devout. See how he loves his master. And Judas was, at the end of it all, an enemy of Christ. And yet, what, what did Jesus do in that interpersonal relationship, if, if you want to put it that way, knowing he was the son of perdition, Jesus, in his humanity, loved Judas. And some of you might be wondering, any of you skeptical, Is it just the people in the back or are some of you up here skeptical too? I can't tell. Okay, we've got one skeptic in the front row. Thank you for your transparency. You're thinking, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't God have enemies? Doesn't the scripture say that God hates his enemies? And you could even take that a step further, couldn't you? You could say, well, wait a minute. David hated God's enemies in his role as Israel's king. That's why every time we get to Israel's songbook, the Psalms, and we run into those imprecatory Psalms where David is, you know, crying out, smoke them, Lord, smoke them now, you know? And you're thinking, what? Um, People sang that stuff? Is that okay for us? Does that square with the heart of our king here in Matthew 5? I see your skepticism, some of you. That's okay. But listen, David sang those calls for judgment as a representative of God's people. It was as a representative of God's people that David called for, Lord, would you show just a tiny bit of that wrath that will come one day when you vindicate your righteousness with finality? Elijah, too. So many of the prophets called down judgment as they functioned as God's appointed representatives. For his people, they were not acting as individuals in their personal relationships. I'll give you a quick example, though we won't turn to it. But you're familiar with the account of David having an opportunity to kill Saul, 
who was on him like ugly on an ape, right? And, and, and what did David do? He said, I, I'm, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. That, that, that's not for me to do. So here in Matthew 5, Jesus is dealing with how his people, kingdom people, kingdom of heaven people, handle their individual relationships at the personal level. We're not to have a retaliatory, vengeful spirit. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We looked at that last week. And we are to love all of our neighbors, including those neighbors who are enemies. And this is not distant and theoretical. This is personal. It's to do with you. And it's to do with me. We have enemies, do we not? Those who oppose us. How then? How exactly are we to imitate our father who gave his only son to make a wretch like me his treasure? Look at verse 44, please. Please look at verse 44. Again, a little bossy, I apologize. Um, in, in, the, in the King James Version, the New King James Version, um, it, it reads this way. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, many of you noticed in, in your translation, if you're not reading from the King James um, in fact, most other translations. The, the commands, bless those who curse you, um, do good to those who hate you, are omitted. And, 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 you, and that's because newer, fresher Greek manuscripts used to give us um, the ESV, the NASB, NIV, almost any other English translation um, doesn't have those words. And so you might be thinking, well, what a relief this is then, because, because in reality, um, um, if, if you got you know, the, the better versions, um, that means we don't really have to worry so much about uh, blessing and um, um, whatnot. We'll just doing good, all of that stuff. It's, it's, just, it's just a matter of praying, see. And, and we could pray then, say, for example, Lord, may they be hit by a bus, you know, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, and, and the caution is what? Well, let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? Um, listen to Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Romans 12.14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And so the, the, the textual variants don't really matter a hill of beans. And it turns out they never do when it comes to the word of God. Blessing even those who curse us, doing good even to those who hate us, such a love is a love of action, isn't it? it, it it's a love that, that takes the initiative that's expressed in some way. Like, like what? Like bearing a cross. Even when someone is my enemy then, I am to treat them as a friend. 
and pray for those, says the king, who spitefully use you and persecute you. Listen, you still with me? Instead of cursing and mocking the people in our community who are apart from Christ and living like it, rather than hating those people and advertising our contempt on our Facebook pages and our little bumper stickers that we think are so funny, um, our jokes that we tell at the office, that sort of thing, God would have us pray for our enemies. Anybody else here who could testify to the change of heart that occurs when you begin to pray for the fellow that hates you and isn't afraid to act like it? Anybody? Couple? One in the back. Pray that their hearts would be melted by the Father's love just as your heart was melted by the Father's love. Uh, Pray that their eternal destiny would not be the hell that they are now living toward. Pray that your witness to them and your example before them in the way that you treat them might commend to them the gospel. Think of this. When when a gospel-hostile crowd dragged Stephen outside the city and began to throw rocks at him uh, until he died. Stephen used his dying breath, the scripture says, to pray this, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And again, back to you skeptics. Well, how did that work out? Well, the rocks kept coming, didn't they? In fact, people took off their outer garments to to free up their arms so they could loosen up and throw the rocks a little bit harder. And, And the pragmatists among us says, well, that doesn't sound like it worked then. This is not to do with what we think works. This is to do with obedience to God. And the people throwing the rocks, they set their clothes aside, the scripture says, and laid them at the feet of a fellow named Saul, who was the first century church's Osama bin Laden at the time. Saul, whom Jesus saved in great power on the Damascus Road. Saul, who, in the power of the Spirit, wrote that, those words of God in Romans and Galatians that we looked at earlier. And you see, Stephen never got to see that, this side of his eternity. This is how we imitate our Father in the kingdom of heaven. This is how we bear the likeness of our father and his son, our king. And he may use it for gospel purposes, kingdom building purposes, but but let the account of Stephen and Saul remind us that we, we may never see that. I remember, you still listening? I remember um, several years ago, Pam and I went on a marriage retreat 
And I mean, we weren't in crisis at the time. Um, but, but we went on this marriage retreat at Cannon Beach, Oregon, and it was, it was a, just a wonderful time. And um, after one of the sessions, there's a lady in the back. Um, uh, she kept looking at us kind of funny. And, uh, and then I, I, I so I, I, I held the gaze, if you know what I mean, and I, and I started looking at her kind of funny. And, um, and, and Pam and, then, and her spouse, they, they started looking at us kind of funny. And um, she was the, the, the neighbor girl that I grew up with like 30 years prior. Um, but I didn't recognize her. I recognized her mother, if you know what I mean. And, um, and, and I said, well, and, and she, had, she said, hi, Steve, you know, during the break. And I said, well, how did, how did you know it was me? She says, well, I didn't recognize you. I saw your dad. And um, all right. And we had a good laugh at that. So strong is the resemblance of children to their parents. You see where this is going? How does the world know that you're a child of God? Is it because you love your friends? Everybody loves their friends. Animals love their friends. You bear the resemblance of your father. It's unmistakable. In fact, it's otherworldly. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this fallen world even now, and it's seen in the way God's kids love their enemies, even as God loved them when they were yet his own enemies. There's always the danger of these things being practical, right? Now, this word love is, is familiar to many of us. It's the word agapao or agape, agape love. And it, it's not the love of feelings. So don't get tripped up by that. It's the love of volition. Agapao, godly love, has nothing to do with feelings. And in fact, it may well be contrary to feeling. That's why this love can be commanded. Did you notice that? How can you command love? Well, you can't if it's only emotional. If it's only to do with feelings. But this is the love of choice. This is the love of the will, the volition. And it's sourced not in the object of the love, but in the one doing the loving. So here's an application. God commands me to choose to love my neighbors, friends or enemies, not feel love toward them. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones in his um, messages on the Sermon on the Mount who said, uh, you know, note that the command here is to love, not to like. And I don't think he meant that to be kind of funny or, or flippant even. It's just that, Agape love is the love of volition. And, and if we struggle with that, think of the communion table again. Think of the cross of Calvary. Uh, you know, as Jesus died for us at Calvary, do we imagine that at the time he was overcome 
with warm, fuzzy feelings about us? I'm not trying to be funny. Those kinds of emotions? No. His was a love of choice, a love of volition that compelled him to bless you and me, all of us redeemed ones, to do the highest good for us, even when we were yet his enemies. And so this is the love that the king says to us in his word, imitate this love. Love your enemies as God loves his enemies. Bless those who curse you, verse 44. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And this is where keeping the context of the Sermon on the Mount is really important to us because Jesus is not explaining now how you get into the kingdom. I won't retrace all of that, but do you remember that? I will if you don't nod your head, yes. Okay, you remember that, right? He's explaining the way of the kingdom or life in the kingdom. How do kingdom of heaven citizens actually live in the power of the spirit? So Jesus is not saying that we're saved by loving our enemies. Don't think that. We're saved by grace, amen? The king is describing the nature of life in his kingdom. It's the way God's kids increasingly act in their personal relationships. Not a felt thing. It may not be a fondness. It may be, but it may not be. How can you be fond of people who oppose you? How how can you uh, be fond of people who are always trying to stick a fork in everything it is that you try to do? People who belittle you. People who may even harm you. So what does it look like? Verse 45. What does the father's love in this sense look like? He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Uh, Notice the placement of those four words that are highlighted there in some color. Um, Evil, good, and then just and unjust. Those two pairs of words are arranged as a chiasm. And that simply means that the emphasis isn't on evil or good or just and unjust. The emphasis is on what the father does, okay? His son, the son he created, the son that he spoke into existence, the son whose rays he maintains and directs every second of every hour of every day. We call that providence, That sun rose this morning, believe it or not. That sun rose this morning, and it rose this morning over evil people, and it rose this morning over God's people. That is the love of God, indiscriminate in that sense. One day, not soon, but one day he will send the refreshing warmth of spring, won't he? And, and, and we'll think it's coming in late February. Turns out that's not true, okay? It's May or June. We understand that. But, but the day when the Father sends the warmth of spring in reality, 
and, and, and sends the refreshing rain. How many of you know the most wicked people in this community will enjoy the warmth of that spring? And they will enjoy the refreshment of those rains just as God's people do. God loves all people in this way, an indiscriminate love. And, and this is sometimes referred to as common grace. Now stay with me here. Common grace as distinct from saving grace, okay? The just and the unjust receive common blessings from God. It's a love sourced in God himself, not, not in the worthiness of the recipients. There most certainly is a love of God that is not shared by all. We just remembered that love at the communion table, didn't we? That's why I mentioned, hey, if you're outside the kingdom, if you've not received this saving love from God through faith in Christ alone, whose work for you alone reconciles you to God, let the bread and the cup pass. Why would I say that? Because the communion table is to do with saving grace, saving love from God. John the Apostle in his first epistle puts it this way. He says, see how great a love the Father has given to us. This is different from the common love, the sun rising and all of that, that we should be called children of God, and we are. So, so when Jesus says, hey, love your enemies, he's, he's talking about even those outside the kingdom are to be loved in that, that common sense that, that I mentioned earlier. Actually, I don't mean it's common sense. I mean that, that, that common manner that I mentioned earlier. Spurgeon puts it this way. You still listening? God, in causing his son to shine upon the bad, is rendering good for evil is wishing well to those who treat him ill, is intending favor to those that delightfully use, despitefully use him and persecute his cause. You know, um, do you have time for a quick story? I'm going to tell it anyway, but I'm just trying to gauge your attitude here. Um, when our kids were little... Um, we, we lived in a little house on 8th Street in Coeur d'Alene. And, and that little house somehow just was like the neighborhood hangout. And some of you here with kids, um, you, you, have, you know what that is. You have a house that's like the neighborhood hangout. All of the kids were always at our house. And, and you know, all these kids who aren't immediate family members, obviously. And we fed those neighbor kids. And we gave them their snacks. And we um, rubbed their runny noses and all that. We meaning Pam, of course. And um, I mean, the thing is, listen, we did all of the same kinds of things for those kids that we did for our own kids. But, but here's the deal. We didn't love them from the heart the way we loved our own children. You see how simple this is? This is not complex. What, what, what is familiar to us then in the natural realm says the king, 
is to be translated into this supernatural realm, the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to our neighbors, even our enemies. Such is life in the kingdom. Here's the thing. Love for my enemies commends the gospel. And love for my enemies communicates Christ to others. I wonder, what, what are we communicating these days to our enemies? You ever think about that? Boyce, I think it was, James Montgomery Boyce was the fellow who said, you know, in reality, there are, there are five gospels the, the believer needs to be concerned about, you know, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then there's just the gospel of your own life. I think he's freelancing a little bit there, but you, you, get, the, you get the point, don't you? That gospel may well be the only gospel your neighbor sees. And so says Jesus in verse 46, if, if, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Tax collectors in Jesus' day were the ultimate dirtbags in the community because they were Jewish people who had sold out to the Romans who let them be those who gathered their taxes and, and, and the, the Roman governor, you know, Pilate or somebody would say to the tax collectors, we want this amount of revenue. Make sure you get that. Whatever you skim off the top is your, I mean, whatever you get on top of that is your business. And you can imagine how this would have been abused. People profiting off of their own countrymen. How would you feel about such a person? How would Jesus feel about such a person as he saw his people suffering as they were? I mean, let's just say that the tax collector was a fellow named Levi or, or Matthew, as many knew him. You get the, you get the, the idea here. Agapao. Agape love is not a feeling, it's a choice. In fact, it's a gospel reflex. Remember that from last week? A gospel reflex, volition energized by the Spirit of God, now at home in the hearts of his people. Those despised tax collectors, they had their own social clubs for sure. And they went to each other's parties and they sent each other birthday cards and they shared casserole recipes and all of that sort of thing. And Jesus is saying, look, if, if God's people only love that way, their own kind, what are they doing that is any different from the rest of the world? There is a palpable difference though in the way Christians love one another. Brethren of the same womb, born of the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, and yet we can still show love to those for whom feelings of love are, are absent. Some of you maybe noticed that when I, I read Galatians 6.10, I, I left some words out. Here's the verse in its entirety. Therefore, as we have opportunity, 
let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It doesn't say instead of, but, but there is an acknowledgement that that common love um, is, is um, surpassed by this love that is unique to the people of God indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. God is, God is love. What is a church? A club? Of like-minded people? No. The church is heaven's embassy on earth. And the church, heaven's embassy on earth, represents the nature of the king to the people of this earth. Each of its members living as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just end with this. And, and, and I mean literally, we're going to end here in just a, just a minute. But this is the last of the six antitheses that we've looked at in Matthew 5. And if you have your Bible, I'm, I'm not going to read these verses for us, but just, just flip back if you need to a page or two and, and just, just remember that this all began in verse 21 of Matthew 5. And Jesus kept saying over and over again, I know you've been taught this, but I say to you, I know you've been taught that it's okay to harbor murderous thoughts toward people as long as you don't kill them. But I say to you, stop it. You're not right with me as you harbor murderous thoughts toward another person, another image bearer. And then we went to verses 27 through 30. I know you've been taught that it's okay to sleep around and indulge your lusts outside of marriage, but I say to you, sexual intimacy is a sacred thing. It's reserved for the blessed boundaries of marriage, and fidelity within marriage reflects this sacredness. I know you've been taught otherwise, but I say to you. And and then we went to verses 31 and 32. I know you've been taught that you can divorce for any old reason, as long as you have the certificate. But I say to you, stop it. Be loyal in your marriage as God is loyal in your marriage to him. And then we went to verses 33 through 37. I know you've been taught you can lie as long as you figure out how to make your lie sound like the truth with an oath. But I say to you, be truthful. Be a true person from the inside out. And then last week, verses 38 through 42. I know you've been taught you can, in fact, should retaliate against the one who offends you, the the one who imposes upon you. But I say to you, imitate me, says the king, as you hold on loosely to your rights, as you hold on loosely to the money over which God has given you stewardship, as you hold on loosely to even your comfort and your sense of control. You're an ambassador. You represent the king, his agenda, 
is the one you live by. And then today, says Jesus, I know you've been taught that it's okay to love those who are not like you. They belong to that other party. They do this and that and the other thing that is an offense to God. And Jesus says, that sin is offensive and that sin will be judged. It'll either be judged in Christ or it'll be judged for eternity in hell. But as for you, says the king, love them in your personal relationships with this love of choice. See, this is the fragrance of Christ at work in his people. These are all areas that King Jesus begins to exert his reign over in the lives of those who belong to his kingdom. And so we're works in progress, are we not? How can you not look at a passage like this and and be struck by the reality that you are yet a work in progress? This is not natural to love one's enemies. To, To what end? Look at verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. It turns out that word perfect is really important. And it's important that we understand it. The Greek word teleos is to do with completeness. It's to do with wholeness. It's to do with maturity, right? How do you know you're maturing as a child of God? You begin to love your enemies. You don't merely love those who are lovely. Those who love you back. Those for whom you have warm, fuzzy feelings. And who but our King Jesus ever loved perfectly in this way? He's the perfect man. Amen? He's the express image of the Father. So so we end with simply this. Am I growing up? Am I growing up in Jesus? You say, well, I've been going to church for a really long time. And I didn't have gray hair when I first came here. Well, that's not the kind of maturity where Jesus is speaking of, is he? We know we're growing up in Christ when we love as God loves, even that visceral part of our lives is under the submission of the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we began our time together rejoicing in your salvation and remembering your great love for us through the communion table. How else could we ever understand this call that your people, enabled by you, will increasingly love their enemies? Lord, we ask that you would help us with this. We acknowledge that it is not natural for us. We, we need that grace from you. If we're to move in this direction at all, if we're to mature by your measure, so we ask you for help. And we ask, Lord, ultimately, so that the fragrance of Christ would be palpable in your people as we live in this community, dark as it is that you'd be glorified in your church. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.